Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Living, best-selling author, personal trainer, and host of Give Me Strength, where we discuss the positives of living a stronger life physically and mentally with the hope to inspire you to do the same. Welcome to Give Me Strength. My guest today is Oliver Patrick, who is a physiologist and leading expert in lifestyle management. He was head of physiology at Nuffield Hospitals, where he led the largest team of applied physiologists, well-being advisors, and nutritionists in the UK. Alongside advanced health assessments, Oliver co-founded the first lifestyle medicine gym in Oxford, tailoring exercise and lifestyle advice to the non-exercise market. And Ollie and I were then introduced to a very good friend of ours called Harry, uh, when he co-founded a company called Future Practice, which equips personal trainers and those in the fitness industry with future kind of qualifications and CPD around stress and stress management. So it's a really exciting um, sliding doors moment when we were introduced because honestly, he's someone that I've gone to for a lot of advice and help over the last few years and who's been really helpful in my own journey of learning more about the kind of more well-rounded approach to health and well-being rather than just focusing in on the kind of minute details that I used to think um, made up what health and well-being are. So Ollie, it's so great to have you on. Thank you for giving up some of time out of your very busy diary. You've been flying all over the world recently, so it's great to have you here 
and on the podcast and in London. It's a great privilege. What a what a wonderful intro and it's great to be with you. It's been great following your journey as well from again fitness to well-being to more uh, and it's again I think we have many shared passions around trying to equip as many people as possible to to run their own lives you know in the most effective way possible so we're we're kindred spirits in that way I think Alice we absolutely are and I love that and look today I really want to focus in on something that you obviously speak a lot about and specialize in which is around stress I think it's such an interesting topic and I can't wait to delve into that but before we do that I think one of the things that I genuinely really want to understand is what is a physiologist (laughs) because we know what a doctor is we know what a health practitioner I guess is to a certain extent but what is a physiologist? Where's your place in the kind of health and well-being landscape? It's a great question. And and again, I normally start by sort of explaining I'm not a physiotherapist. So if I go anywhere, in fact, my wife will still introduce me as a physiotherapist at dinner parties because it's easier. And then, you know, people will yeah. turn up with their sore elbow or dodgy knee. I'm a physiologist as a term. Just the term is, is a bit like nutritionist in the fact it isn't actually, uh, you know, a clear, recognized health profession. So unless it's got some like a health professional council registration, it's open to interpretation, which is a blessing and a curse. So your traditional physiologist would be someone who's a clinical physiologist, which is someone who's trained in cardiac physiology or respiratory physiology. And they would generally work in the hospital environment, bringing people who've had a heart attack or you know pulmonary respiratory breathing issues and rehabilitate them back to not. So that, that's the most common type of physiologist and they have to do a special qualification. I was actually actually an exercise physiologist, which is probably another area of physiology that people have had some experience of. And you generally find exercise physiology as an adjunct to either strength and con- conditioning. So people who would work in elite sport, um, generally in the aggregation of physiological data, most notably how cardiovascular fit someone is, or markers of athletic performance, jump height, or um, lactate, the body's ability to manufacture energy and, and how it does that more effectively. And exercise physiology is, is pretty well recognized, but works generally as an adjunct to elite performance and sport. Um, I came into a job that was called sports physiology straight out of an exercise physiology degree. And I sort of wondered what, what on earth this was and had a very odd exposure to being in health assessments. So I actually came straight out of exercise science into corporate health assessments, where I found a group of people who didn't really enjoy exercise, funnily enough. So it's a bit of a culture clash. And Kind of long story short, ended up having to sort of write out a series of, of additional learning modules because no one had taught me what I needed to know. And, and I frame that in the sense that, you know, there was, a, there was a nurse and a doctor in the health screen that I was involved in. And I was left at the end of a three-hour health assessment tackling people who'd been told they were clinically well, but presented as markedly dysfunctional. And they would have questions like, well, it's great that I've been told I'm well, but I don't sleep very well. Or it's been great that I've been told that I'm well, but you know I get a strange rumbling in my tummy when I eat, you know, too many Maltesers. Or it's great I've been told I'm well, but I can't run because of my knees. And and what was really interesting is is there would be no real insight into their functionality, and there'd be no strategic guidance to their lifestyle. I frame all this because what what I ended up doing was writing a qualification which became the level seven um, diploma in health and well-being physiology, and we got that turned into a a profession that's pretty well governed, not as well governed as, as you know, medicine or, or physiotherapy or, or nursing, but created a professional standards that meant we could work, you know, consistently between Nuffield or a Booper or a another. But it's, it's really a health and well-being physiologist. And it's, 
Uh, it's really someone whose job it is to accrue physiological data and then provide effective lifestyle strategy off the back of that. Um, and, and it's really interesting that that market is, is sort of growing in the fact that people are recognizing curating lifestyle is, is quite a technical thing, you know, and, and we can dive into that. But, you know, the choices yeah. you and I make today will have a huge bearing on how we feel today and how we function tomorrow and how, how long we live and how well we live. And yet most people are guessing at that. And I was really interested in how do we apply a data-led approach to decision-making? And then how do I make practitioners who consistently give consistent advice that, that's as effective as possible? It's a long old answer. Yeah, no, it's a brilliant answer. And it's so interesting. And kind of what I'm hearing from you is that there's there's a bit of a disconnect between the two narratives that we see when it comes to health. There's the on paper, everything's great. You haven't got any sort of um, cause for concern. Your bloods look fine, whatever. Off you go, have a good life. <laughs> the other line, which is... Well, all of this looks great, but yet I'm still presenting as not feeling 100%. And I know personally that I've been in this state. And so this is why it's so interesting to me, because I know that I've gone to my GP and said, I really don't feel quite right. Something's going on here. And I've been told this is fine. That's fine. This fine. There's no reason on paper that we can see that's making you feel the way that you're feeling. So you're kind of shipped off. And it's a really um, unsatisfying response because I think that all of us are quite intuitive beings and we probably know deep down when something isn't quite right. But because we're so conditioned to believe that a certain set of parameters therefore means, okay, we're fine, you know, get on with it. Yeah. But actually it's really difficult then. And I think it's so interesting and, and, you know, we've had great conversations about this, but that's, that's where you position yourself is that kind of bridging gap between helping people to incorporate lifestyle factors into the overall health narrative so that it's not, you know, on paper, you're fine, but but you don't feel fine. It's let's get the whole thing looking really good, if that makes sense. And I just want to understand how how you start to do that because for a lot of people, you know, their their health is very important to them. I'm I'm pretty sure that most people listening to this podcast would say that their health is 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 a, a priority to them. And there are people who are probably have have been or are in a similar position to myself. On paper, I'm fine, but I don't feel fine. Yes. How do you start to pick apart what that might be and start to intervene in terms of your, uh, you know, working within your scope of practice to help someone to get to a place where they think, oh, I actually feel good now? God, that's such a good question and, and raises so many challenges and, and It's a huge question, sorry. It's a huge question. God, I thought it was just be a nice, relaxed chat. I think, you know, <laughs> I think, you know the, the most important thing when we look at medicine's role in health is, is not to criticize it because it does an amazing job at the area it's focused on, right? So we can look at the healthcare system traditionally, your doctor, your healthcare system as a very much a reactive healthcare system. In the fact, its job is to catch you as you break. You know, it, it's working on the idea that as I become increasingly dysfunctional, can, can medicine identify that? And then can it treat me therapeutically, be that a medication, be that surgery, be that some kind of therapy, but bring me back to the point where I'm not broken. Its job is not to take me from not broken to flourishing to the best version of myself. Its job is to catch me breaking and bring me back to not broken. And of course, you know, that that your traditional GP maybe having six, seven minutes, of course they're gonna have to react to the the pain that you brought into their office and take that away as quickly as possible. You know, the world health definition of of being healthy is a complete state of physical, mental, and social well-being, not merely the absence of disease or infirmity. So saying, look, it's not enough to just not be ill. You've got to be flourishing, you know, complete state of physical, social, mental well-being. But that doctor's got seven minutes to take away your abdominal pain. They've got six minutes to take away 
you know, your your extreme fatigue because you're going through a long, drawn out divorce. It's not their job to build a, an infrastructure that's more resilient to that happening. So, the person who wants to move from not broken to flourishing has to sort of self-solve that. And one of the things that we I used to find really interesting was how people have determined the best way to make themselves feel better or flourishing, and and the array of messages we get about things that will make you feel better. So we used to do at the beginning of the the world's most advanced health assessment a big interview. And you'd sit there and you'd have all the supplements they take and you'd have all the exercise they do and the diet they follow. And you'd be like, how has this person arrived at this sort of smorgasbord of, of strange things where on a Tuesday they have a B12 injection in their bum and on Wednesday, you know, they have a, a seaweed wrap and on Thursday, you know, they, they meet their keto coach to make sure they haven't eaten any carbohydrate for three years. Yikes. And, <laughs> you know, half their annual you know, budget gets spent on, on a various, you know, oil of ole creams that, that make them feel better. And let's also be clear. If well-being is a $4.2 trillion global industry, the biggest contributor to that is skin creams. So we have this really weird infrastructure that says, we've got an incredible medical ecosystem that takes people from broken to not broken, that's robust and and evidence-based. And then sort of everything to the right of that, from from not broken to to feeling more energized, to feeling more in tune with self, to flourishing, is left to the individual to to self-solve. And products sell single point solutions to that. So yeah, my B12 is going to give me energy. Yeah, my, you know, putting this cream on my skin is going to change my my perspective about myself. Yeah, this probiotic is going to solve my long-term irritable, you know, bowel syndrome, et cetera. And that that leads to a, a really confused audience. And I think well-being moved really interestingly from being sort of, you know, a, a challenge of, of a lack of information to now a challenge of misinformation, of course. And one of the, the great challenges of, of traditional medicine is it's subspecialized really aggressively, right? So if you go to Harley Street, and Harley Street is strange, you know, London Street where, you know, you know it, Alice, where every room in every building is some kind of medical or affiliate medical Yeah, thing. it's a wild place. <laughs> it's a wild place. You've got these two sort of kilometer long roads where everything's medical. You know, within there, you've got, you know, you've got orthopedics broken into shoulder and leg, you know, so upper limb, lower limb. And then in your lower limb, you've got ankle, and then you've got foot, and then you've got left foot versus right foot, and you've got medicine as divided. You've even itself. got someone, David Baker, who's a wrist specialist, wonderful, <laughs> totally. to fix my decoyments. Totally, <laughs> so, like you know, just the bones in the wrist. <laughs> totally. So that, that's a great example. So you've got at a therapeutic end, people have sub 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 specialized, so you can see the exact perfect person. Yeah, and I think that's great, but the generalist is dying a little bit, and I and I look again. To the right of that, I'm not broken, but I'm not flourishing line and say, have we as well-being and fitness subspecialized that you've got this SNC coach and you've got this Pilates and you've got yoga and they're separate to your, you know, your, your um, primal movement coach, which is separate to your, you know, your local community rehabilitation coach. And, yeah. and then that's before you get into dietitians, nutritionists, clinical nutritionists. And that's before you get into sleep consultants and, and breathwork consultants and meditation coaches. And it's like, you know, everything has created so many different avenues that, that the individual's going to find it difficult to find that generalized sense of, of where to go. And going right back to the physiology piece, my, my role was to help people curate a lifestyle strategy that generally solved their problem, but would then refer to the subspecialist when, when that was required. Yeah. But your average person, and I'm, again, nutritionists and dietitians will disagree, but your average person doesn't need to see a dietitian or a nutritionist. They need to recognize that probably 50% of their diet is ultra processed, you know, hyper palatable foods. If they can somehow find an incentive and platform to move that to forty percent, they'll feel significantly better. So, on the first part of your question, this is, you know, I think it's not medicine's fault that it's not there 
for the for the oh I I don't feel well piece because culturally that's not its remit and technically that's not what they've been trained in. The second part is we we're we're quite a confusing machine. You know, we 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 learn more every year, but no one's got the single point solution to to well being. I think feeling is, is for me always often an expression of energy. So you know, I always look at the, the the situation where I look at energy, not energy in the sense of you know meridians and Reiki and you know talking about energy. Did I wake up this morning knackered? Um, did I survive without you know double espresso? Do I have the energy to ask my wife how her day's been, but really mean it rather than just ask it? You know, do I have the energy to you know for my immune system to deal with the bug my kids are inevitably going to bring me home today, having gone to tennis camp, blah blah blah. So energy is is the interesting commodity that translates across most people's functional challenge. So if, I, if someone said to me, Ollie, this is my woe. It's cognitive. I can't think straight. It's emotional. I can't get my mood up. It's physical. I've got poor libido. It's immunological. Like I get the you know I get the cold or, or bug. Then I, my my starting hypothesis to that would be, well, what what does having more energy look like to the presentation of that symptom? And then it's a question of, for me, where in the habits and behaviors that generate energy is there a room for opportunity? So on a simple basis, when I look at lifestyle, and we talk about this, obviously, you and I lots, you know, lifestyle for me can be simplified in, into five domains of things that directly affect me. So what is my lifestyle? My lifestyle is not whether I go on a nice Instagrammable holiday or not. My lifestyle is what are the variables beyond my genetics that affect my physiology? And the key variables would be movement. So whether I move a lot or move a little, my nutrition, whether I nourish or, or undernourish, um, whether I recover, which is the biological processes that restore energy. So sleep will be a critical part of that, but not the only. So that would be sleep and stress, if I'm being you know, simplistic. My environment, so that environment, partly the people I'm around, and, and you've spoken lots about toxic people and, and the role they can have, but also the physical environment, sunlight exposure, darkness exposure, noise pollution, air pollution, that affects my physiology. Yeah. And then last but maybe most, mindset, which is the way I think about everything. The person who walks down the street and sees a thousand potential muggers will have a very different experience. The person who walks down the same street seeing a thousand potential friends. So across those five domains, that's what I'm talking about when, when I look at lifestyle. And for me, again, if, if someone again presented with that, that problem and we said what, what we do to add more energy, then my challenge then is to look across those five domains and go, where's where's your limiting factor, right? And I think it's an interesting message into the fitness world where you can't always solve a problem through fitness if fitness isn't the problem, right? So if you take someone who's extremely physically active, yeah. trains beautifully, and they're not getting either a body composition goal or a mood stability goal, and they see everyone around them thriving, then if the absence of movement wasn't contributory then the addition of more movement won't be the solution oh god i want yeah i'd love to frame that and get it on a t-shirt <laughs> i think the thing that you really offer up though ollie which which i i really value in the current climate especially in the health and well-being space is that we're offered right now very simple solutions to much more complex and nuanced problems the constant um narrative of calories in versus calories out just do more movement you know um have an ice bath to do all these things that seem very gimmicky to me because, you know, I'm someone who, and I'll completely hold my hands up and say, I did the calorie tracking for a long time with zero impact on my body composition. There were so many other things going on. We, we, we basically make people solely responsible for something that I think is not their sole responsibility. You put the onus on the individual to say, 
well, if you're not losing weight or if you're not achieving your body composition goal or if you're not, you know, feeling good, that's your responsibility. And I think that, yes, okay, our health and well-being is our responsibility to a certain extent, but I think it, it's almost develops a blame culture that makes people feel really responsible for not being of good health or feeling of good health. And, and in your words, flourishing, which I think is a great word. Um, and I think that what you offer is such a more in-depth and and really thought through kind of mechanism of people looking at every part of that kind of wheel, I guess, of of aspects of health and being able to just be offered a little bit more than just go on a diet or count your calories or just go for a walk every day and that'll solve all your problems. Do you see what I mean? I do. And I think I, think I try to do that and, and more importantly, try to coach others to to not think that there's a single point solution to all of this. And, and the great challenge you and I were talking about cognitive bias a little bit earlier, you know, in terms of I'll, I'll see what I'm looking for. But, you know, the, the great challenge is, you know, if someone is proclaiming that the B12 injection we, we joked about earlier gave them more energy, it might be that their limiting factor was they didn't have enough blood and the, the B12 helped, you know, generate a better ability to transport oxygen and, and lo and behold, they feel amazing. So it was their limiting factor. If I go to have my B12 injection, my B12 is high, then it does nothing for me. So I feel like I'm a failure. And, and B12 is an interesting one. But again, if, if I do all the things I see everyone else doing and it doesn't work for me, that doesn't mean I haven't been effective. It just means it wasn't my limiting factor. Yeah. And I think one of the great challenges with the fitness and wellbeing industry, and we've seen it a bit, is that it, it narrowed everything into those two domains of, of the calories I eat and the, and, you know, and the calories I burn, or the quality of my nutrition and the quality of my movement. And what, what was interesting for me in, in the years of delivering you know, very advanced health assessments was I saw a lot of people who, who moved a lot and effectively and nourished effectively without excessive energy density through calories, without, you know, without some of the pitfalls of modern nutrition. They had diverse diets, rich in colors, rich in fibers, rich in proteins. Yet they had the, a stubborn symptom and they often had stubborn body composition. And then we looked at the third maybe of those five domains, recovery, and we'd often find a challenge there. And, and often that challenge would be inadequate sleep quality or inadequate physiological recovery. Now, re recovery has become a bit of a boom word. And people think recovery is my ability to get rid of muscle soreness as quickly as possible so I can do another day of full body squatting you know, and whatnot. That is a part of recovery, as in how quickly can I go again? But when I talk about recovery, really I'm talking about your body's ability to, to recoup energy, um, which is you know, we spend roughly a third of our lives recouping energy and two thirds expending. So when we found people who weren't getting the results they, they wanted, we looked at markers, physiological markers of recovery, um, i.e. we looked at sleep cycling and we, we used something called heart rate variability, which you and I have spoken about, which gives the, the ability, oh, there she's got an aura on. You know, so really good. <laughs> we'll talk and, about and, that. Yeah. So, you know, and in there you see a challenge and you say, right, okay, let, let's just play in the, the, the person had stubborn body composition. On a pure play basis, if you did put that person on a desert island, you know, with no food and, you know, over a period of time, they would starve, of course, but that which, which composition would be lost and, and at which rate. And when the body doesn't get enough recovery, it does want to hold on to fat stores more, you know, because that's just logic, because the body always thinks inadequate recovery must be a symptom of famine or war. That's our evolved stress response. So inadequate recovery will generate the physiology of famine, which will be to waste muscle tissue, preserve fat. It will be to, you know, decrease energy expenditure, um, which will make you lethargic and fatigued. And you suddenly find people who, who've got low energy, low movement levels, stubborn body fat, 
and and we look at their physiology and say there was inadequate recovery and there was inadequate sleep cycling. And then we go and unlock that, which is far easier said on a on a podcast than in real life. But we look at the causes of that. And then without changing movement or nutrition whatsoever, we often find they unlock benefit X. Yeah. So for me clinically, you know, I, I came into very much you know, when I started exercise physiologist. So I thought, give me anyone, and if I get them moving well through resistance, through aerobic, through movement quality like Pilates, I will, you know, I'm the guy. I want to fix this person. And then you get humbled into, well, I can't do that without diet. And then I got humbled into, I can't do movement and diet without recovery. And then I got humbled into, I can't do movement, diet, recovery without mindset. And, and you, you sort of end up going, as much as I want to put human physiology into a single box that is easy to fix for everyone, it isn't that simple. And if we try and take a reductionist approach as in this pill will solve everything, you, you, you delay finding a real solution probably by, by months or maybe even years. One thing I'd love to dig into. So I think that most people listening to this will roughly know that training is good for us. You know, eating a, a diet rich in, as you said, varied colors, textures, flavors, um, you know, as little ultra processed food as possible um, is probably going to be relatively good for them. And, and I think that we'll set those aside and just kind of assume that for the most part, those things are roughly covered and we've covered them a lot on this podcast. The other three pillars really fascinate me. And I think that's where you get the secret sauce. I think that we spend so much time focusing on those first two, the diet and the nutrition, as you've just said, that we we do tend to um, forget and overlook the the three other really important pillars, which for me are just as important as those first two. And the first one of those, when you talk about the recovery, I think you're absolutely right that, you know, Alice, five years ago, coming into um, this conversation, if you said to me, Alice, what do you think recovery is? I'd say, well, it's how quickly that my muscles aren't sore after a session or how quickly I feel that I can get up the next day and go and train again. That would be my very binary term of, of what recovery is. I obviously know differently now. Uh, in your answer just then, you you referenced heart rate variability. And I wondered if you could expand on to you um, what optimal recovery looks like and how one can tell that that is occurring in the body, you know, for you know, whoever is listening and they're, they're going to the gym and they think, oh, how do I know if I'm recovering efficiently? What metrics do you tend to use um, for one? And two, what would that look like? What does optimal recovery look like in the body? Such a such a great question. And I, and I think optimal recovery would, would be determined by the presence of available energy, you know, really. You know, and, and your energy will express through four domains. Physical energy, like we mentioned earlier, can I get up without a coffee? coffee? Can I perform the physical tasks I want to perform? Can I can I, you know, resist the bug that goes around the office? That that sort of physical energy. Then it would also express through emotional energy, as in sustaining difficult relationships. Good relationships are easy to sustain; difficult ones, not so. Um, so that ability to sustain something that, that takes more than it gives, and, and that has a shelf life, of course. But but the ability to do that, mental energy, my clarity of thought. Do I ever think strategically, or do I think continually reactively? So many clients over the years used to say check me for Alzheimer's, you know, because my, I leave my keys everywhere. I, I, I put my bag down. And we saw that their working memory was was poor, not not their long-term memory. But they were just, they really didn't have the energy to remember simple things that weren't critical. So, you know, so low quality thinking patterns, you know, lack of long-term vision, those things will be an expression of low energy. And then spiritual energy is sort of a lack of, you know, who am I? What am I doing? You know, we really, when we think about spiritual energy as an expression, it's it's purposeful living. And again, with I put it within mindset on my five domains, but it, it almost deserves its own category because it, it's something that, again, from a humility point of view, I thought I could make people more well through the actions and choices they took daily, but without 
a reason to take those actions and choices, it becomes difficult over time. So purpose has become a hugely fascinating, you know, linchpin of everything that that, that I do. Um, I think, you know, fr- from that point of view, recovery, you know, is is the mechanisms that drive energy into those four domains. Um, so it's 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 best marker of is it there or not is do I have as much energy as I'd expect in those four domains, physical, mental, emotional, spiritual, or have I got less than I used to have? I think I'm, I'm always fascinated by people who don't feel pain because they have a very short life expectancy and people think, oh, having no pain must be brilliant, right? You know, get to throw myself off something and, and not worry about anything. What's the opposite? You know, if you, if you have no pain sensors, you have a short life expectancy because you didn't notice the burn when you put your hand on the stove and that got infected. You didn't notice you actually broke your ankle a week ago and now you've got a blood clot that's traveled up and, and caused, you know, a, a pulmonary embolism or something, something more sinister. So pain is a feedback mechanism that you're doing something you don't like. And, and I'm going to throw in there, fatigue is the same, right? So fatigue is a feedback loop that you've had inadequate physiological um, restoration. And yet I walk through Paddington Station, I'll, I'll travel into town later, and I'll see 70, 80% of people with the medication for fatigue in the, in the term of coffee. You know, if, we, if everybody had to take ibuprofen. I was, I was wondering what you were going to say then. I was like, where's this going? Where is so I'm it? sat here with a coffee. <laughs> yeah. And again, you know, if, if someone said to you, I've got to keep taking ibuprofen three times a day because I've got this constant pain in my knee, a good friend would go, go to see a doctor. The doctor would send you to an orthopedic surgeon and say, where's the pain coming from? Yeah. Yet most people are in a pattern of actions and behaviors that don't ask why they're fatigued. They just paper over the fatigue. And the biggest weapon of choice for that is caffeine, not coffee. Coffee's great for you. And caffeine, again, has some some potential health benefits, but it's great challenges. Is it is it the ibuprofen of pain in terms of it's the medicine for fatigue? What other actions and behaviors paper over my fatigue? High glucose diet, you know, having sugar rush, that dopamine fix, doing something that generates immediate dopamine returns, which is the, the neurotransmitter of happiness, like social media. Being argumentative and moody will adrenalize me. You know, we've heard the phrase hangry, which is, you know, I think it originated from the the, the office upstairs in my house. We've all heard the phrase and we've all been there. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so I've been there. So I'm, when I'm <laughs> hungry and I get angry, it's because when I'm, I would release adrenaline in anger that backfills the fact that I haven't got food, right? So if I could be someone who's fatigued, I wake up, I have coffee, donuts, an argument, a day on social media, and I've basically taken the medication that just blasts me through. I might even add into that exercise. So exercise, again, we know generates energy, um, but it's it's a stress, you know. And what we've got is is generally society, and, and I'm not one to speak on society. I'm not a modern philosopher, but society is is now full of actions and behaviours that keep a continual level of stimulus, and it's been the removal of activities that prioritise the restoration of energy that would sit at the crux, I think, of most symptoms that people dismiss as being something else. Yeah. And, and in that terms, if I was looking at that through heart rate variability, which I think for me is still the single most interesting physiological parameter, heart rate variability doesn't mean much itself. It's a way of looking at the nervous system that, that runs the inside of me. So I, as I sit here now, as you sit there now, your blood pressure is going up or down, the heart rate's going up and down, your temperature is going up or down, and you and I are not making conscious choices over that. So our internal physiology is always adapting based on what my brain is telling it to get ready for. So if yeah. someone charged in through my door now, my brain would sense a threat, heart rate up, blood pressure up, sugar up, and it allows me to combat that stress, what people call fight or flight, and, and that's great. 
if someone walks in with a plate of um, steaming hot donuts, you know, then I'll smell it and I'll, my saliva gland will activate and my, my blood will move from my muscles to my stomach and I'll start to get ready for digestion. And human physiology has basically got one nervous system that accelerates it and, and th think of it incorrectly as that's energy out and another nervous system that prepares us for resting and digesting and, and, and energy in. And heart rate variability is a way in which we can score how long an individual is spending ready for a threat or ready for donuts. And each technology, that, that, like an aura ring or a whoop band or you know, first beat analytics, they're trying to turn that into something that the user can use to make better informed decisions. But I'll do a quick synopsis in the fact that when I first started measuring stress, and you can't universally measure stress, I thought I'd find in particularly the groups I was looking at, you know, high net worth individuals, company CEOs, I thought they'd be super stressed because their lives were really busy. And actually they weren't super stressed because they weren't under threat. They, they controlled most of the variables that affected their existence in terms of they owned their house, they owned their business, their kids were in private schools. They didn't have, you know, a great threat to their existence, yeah. but they never disengaged from the life they lived. So their body wasn't always ready for a threat, but their body was never ready to relax. And we started to sort of coin this phrase that, that we don't really see people who are excessively stressed. We see people who are inadequately recovered. And, and heart rate variability is a good marker to show whether an individual is getting insufficient physiological recovery. And if that happens over time, they are paying down a debt. And that debt can be backfilled with some very clever hormones we hear about, like cortisol. It can be backfilled with habits and behaviors. But like all things that, that are sort of short term, the long term payoff is, is quite significant. Yeah, I think that's that's so interesting. Sorry, I just interrupted you, Ollie. No, it's God, it would please interrupt me for, for the sake of the listener who's, who's clinging on for dear life. But I think, you know, it, it's a, so I think my, my favorite marker is heart rate variability, and it will often show inadequate physiological recovery, which is the body not being ready to be, to, for there to be no threat. Yeah. Right? That, that is really important. I think that's where I, um, you know, I'd seen the aura ring. Uh, I'm someone who, and, and let's go into it because I think it's, I've actually not spoken about my experience with it yet. I have worn an Apple watch for as long as I can remember. I love it as an actual, just a watch. Um, and I used it as a mobility kind of gauge to see how much I'd moved each day. Um, when I saw the aura ring and I'd spoken to a few people who wore one, I was really interested by it. I think because my perception of health and well-being has shifted my understanding of your five pillars has become so much greater. And so for me, rather than just tracking how much I was moving each day, it was really important for me to get a bit of a better gauge as to what I'm doing activity-wise and sleep and stress-wise and how that's going to reflect the decisions that I then make as a result of that. So I started, I, you know, I've, I've worn mine. And by the way, full disclosure, I paid for it. I'm, I'm not affiliated with them in any way, <laughs> um, just to clarify. But I, um, I started wearing mine about a couple of months ago. I would say it's probably had the most marked difference on my understanding of where I am. And I think that it's really important. And one of the kind of overarching themes that I kind of want to talk about a bit today, and I, like we're going to go into so many different tangents, but asking yourself how you feel is quite a big thing. And so when we've been speaking throughout this entire conversation, one of the things that's kept coming up to me, like I don't really prep, I prep sort of notes, but I try to really listen into the conversation and see what comes up for me. And I guess one thing that's really come up for me today is we are so much more now encouraged to ask ourselves how we feel, but we are so much less capable of maybe allowing ourselves to be intuitive with how we feel. Do you, do you know what I mean by that? I and and I am a complete culprit of this because I've just said I've got an aura ring and I'm letting, I, and I'm letting it dictate my behavior. <laughs> but 
what I what I think that it's done is it's helped me to feel more intuitive, even if I'm not. Do you see Brilliant. what I mean? I so do. I I I personally don't think I have the ability, maybe necessarily, to sometimes override the feeling of I need to rest or I need to do a good workout or yes. um I need to go to bed earlier or whatever it is. Um, and I think that because of that, it has been really useful for me to have something that gives me that little bit of feedback that helps me to make intuitive decisions. But I think that um, for a lot of us, you know, going back to that point about asking ourselves how we feel, it's hard to to be like, how do I feel? What do I need? Am I well? Am I not? Am I tired? You know, most people that I know are permanently fatigued at the moment. That's just, unfortunately, life is busy it's go 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 and most people find themselves in a state of being like, oh, a bit tired and a bit run down and a bit this bit that um maybe less so now the sun's come out because that does make a big difference but big difference. um but yeah but i think that um what the aura has done for me is helped me to lean into those intuitive behaviors that i unfortunately for whatever reason have disconnected from listening to and particularly of interest to me are things like eating a big meal close to bed yeah. for me, has a big impact on my heart rate variability. Um, eating a high glucose meal cl- close to bed has a big impact on my heart rate variability. Um, drinking coffee, obviously, later in the day, we know that that has an impact, but that definitely is really interesting in terms of if I have a coffee past two o'clock, I will notice yeah. that my heart rate variability is affected. If I have a day where I um, am not doing very much, and I'm a bit lethargic and a bit kind of just lying on the sofa, that really impacts my heart rate variability. So it almost goes both ways. It, it tells me to slow down, but it also tells me to move in it like, and kind of encourages me to do those things in a way that, for example, the aura was probably one of the reasons why I started doing some more cardio because I noticed that my resting heart rate was actually not as low as I would quite like it to be. And my yeah. heart rate variability was actually not as quite as good as I thought it was going to be. And yep. that even in itself has been a really interesting positive health change off the back of of wearing this. So in a roundabout way, we've gone off on a tangent about, you know, fitness trackers and health trackers. And it's interesting to hear your take on it. But I do think that my take on it and my relationship with it has been it's helped me to be a little bit more intuitive. It doesn't rule my life. And I think it's really important to not have that relationship with your wearable tracker. You should be able to take it off and override what your what your what your fitness tracker is telling you i fundamentally believe that and i sometimes yeah. think it's helpful to have like one day a week where you just don't wear it because it's good to good to get into that habit but it can be a very useful tool like i said to be a little bit more intuitive about how you then approach every aspect of your well-being rather than just how much you're moving and how much you're eating we'll be back after this Welcome back to Give Me Strength. I couldn't agree more. I think you framed that perfectly. I, I do. And I, I, I think that these technologies are interesting. So again, heart rate variability, it feels very technically, you know, complex. And, and traditionally, these devices have sold to the fitness community as a method of finding overtraining, right? So most people are like, listen, I don't train, let alone overtrain. So yeah. what, what, what in God's name do I need? So I think that the market is broadening, but the original sort of concept was, look, if I'm doing too much exercise, then my body will be too physiologically prepped all the time. I'll get inadequate energy restoration, and then I'll start breaking down. So every session I get diminishing returns. 
Um, so Aura were, you know, they were very much pitched at elite fitness professionals to get that training volume right. So they didn't do that one too many sessions. That means they get diminishing returns. As I mentioned earlier, you know, for me, heart rate variability in, in the, the 15,000 pound health assessment I used to run, where it had yeah, MRI, CT, full genome analysis, every hormone measured, every blood marker, everything that could come out of your body was measured. Um, stool, you know, saliva, urine, blood. HRV was the most interesting. And, and interesting in the sense it, it, it most reflected the feelings or challenges the individual was presenting with. And it gave us the clearest roadmap for what actions and behaviors they should add in to change the way they felt. Yeah. So it was really useful as a lifestyle diagnostic and then as a, as a lifestyle strategy tool. So HRV for me, heart rate variability is, is a wonderful tool with, again, if I simplify it excessively, inadequate time in physiological recovery, and we can call that the parasympathetic nervous system. So inadequate time where the parasympathetic nervous system that restores energy, that promotes digestion is the dominant system in your body would be the null hypothesis for most people. And I would start, you know, lots of conversations by saying, what, what would the problem you're presenting to me look like if you had more time over each 24 hours where your body was in a parasympathetic state? And by the way, this is why we've seen the explosion of cold, cold water immersion, the explosion of meditation into two, you know, unicorn um, applications in calm and headspace, the explosion of meditation, the explosion of breath work, because these activities fundamentally take someone from being in the sympathetic energy out state into the parasympathetic energy in state. So they're like a, um, a, a pill to change your internal state, which may often have a significant ripple up into, into mood state as well. Yeah. So I think for me, you know, if the hypothesis is most people get insufficient recovery, then a tool that helps them calibrate that is really important. And I use the word calibrate rather than, you know, be a, a, a servant to your tech, much in the same way you use it. I always remember years ago, we were asking someone about their energy levels, you know, how's your energy out of seven? They're like, I don't know, Ollie, what's yours? I was like, well, I'm not sure how mine affects yours, truth be told, <laughs> you know? but I, I'll, I can run through. And then, of course, what, what is energy? You know, what, what, who's a two, yeah. who's a 10? What's the scale? What's the unit? So it's, it is difficult to do. And most people have been taught to sort of bully past any, any you know, feelings because they get in the way of performance. Yeah. Fatigue will hinder your climb up the corporate ladder and you know, excessive emotion will hinder your ability to, to be one of the lads or one of the lasses. You know? So a lot of time people have, have buried the, the feedback loop because it's hindered them or potentially hindered them. And I think we're seeing a sea change on that. But what is interesting is data can help you calibrate to go, look, this device is saying I have had insufficient recovery. Is that true or not? No or yes, you know, and in most cases, for me, the tech will will match quite closely and allow the individual yeah. to work out how they're doing. And it sounds like it did that for you. Yeah. But that ability to say, look, did I get restorative sleep last night? You know, I feel like I did. Now let me check. It's very different to I've checked and it's told me I didn't get restorative sleep. So now I'm going to present as that. And I think that's where we've got to be very careful that the, the technology isn't the, the tail wagging the dog in the fact that suddenly I'm all the symptoms and expressions of my aura or my whoop, whereas actually I felt quite good until I looked at my watch. So for me, 100%. I, I like these things to answer quite a specific question over a definitive period of time. So, you know, when I first got, uh, you know, one of these monitors, I, it was because I was commuting into London, had young twins, was, you know, working a busy job and I wanted to, to run a race in a particular time. And I would train more than three times a week. I'd get ill. If I trained twice a week, I didn't. And I was looking for feedback to work out when I should and shouldn't train. So it's a very specific question I was asking it. And I think if we ask it a question, which is how can I find more energy or which actions and behaviors like you're saying in, in, inhibit sleep and which ones, you know, really support good quality sleep. Once you've learned 
that you don't want a heavy meal, you don't want a high glucose meal, and your inactivity creates poor sleep you know, pressure and, and doesn't help you switch off properly, it's sort of done its job. Yeah. Then you might find yourself three months down the line that the, the progress has stagnated and you might want to go back and say, are there any other patterns that I could recognize? But very few people would change more than two or three things meaningfully for a sustained period of time at a choice. So I think your use of Aura is, is nigh on perfect. You calibrated, you found some causative behaviors that, that affected you. You can now control those. It doesn't mean drop them or keep them. It just means you 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 can make conscious choice yeah, around them. You're more and mindful then, about them. Totally. And then and then see whether you enjoy it or whether it's becoming a burden. And you know, if it's the latter, put it in a box for a period of time until you face another change in lifestyle, or you know, you're getting married, or you're moving house, or some things that, that are all happening. And you say in the build up to that, I might want to just keep an eye on myself. Yeah. So it becomes a, a strategic tool, not a beholdency tool. Brilliant answer. And actually, I, I, I preface at the start of this chat that we were going to talk about stress and we have not yet got there because <laughs> we've talked so much. So I do actually want to move on to it. And actually, I want to just reference one of the things that we did just speak about to kind of connect the two. Those days where I said that I laid on my sofa and I didn't do very much. What I actually find particularly interesting about those days is my inability to actually fall into a parasympathetic nervous state, i.e., I was lying on the sofa not doing very much, but I was constantly stimulated by my phone. And I think that that's so interesting to me that um, just as we've said a number of times across this conversation, most of us spend a lot of our time in a constantly stimulated state, whether that be on our phones, on our laptops, whether it be, you know, doing exercise or doing lots of things that stimulate us and bring us up without the ability to turn the dial down. Um, and so what was really interesting in that feedback on my, um, on my aura was despite the fact that I'd had a day that one might think was a recovery day, I, I spent the day on the sofa. I didn't really do very much. I sort of took it very easy. Actually, I don't think I really did recover very efficiently. I'd have been far better off leaving my phone at home and going for an hour walk than I would be sitting on my sofa and falling into an absolute TikTok scroll hole. <laughs> I mean, so, so true. So, yes. With, sorry, with that in mind, let's talk about stress and let's talk about the role of stress. We have different types of stress. Some stress is good, some stress is bad. A lot of people's perception of stress might just be that kind of like feeling before an exam, you know, where they're like, oh my God. Um, but actually, stress is such a broad term and it's something that you and I have worked specifically on with future practice. Um, and I think it'd be really good to understand how you navigate the conversation around stress and help people to understand it and then manage it. It's such a great, great topic. And I think that we'd start there by saying, with regards to being on the sofa in the in the doom scroll, you know, the absence of stress is not necessarily the presence of recovery. Yes. It's a slightly different thing. So yes. that that just on a on a habits and behavior thing. And that that sort of feeds into the TV thing, right? I've got home and watching TV, I must be relaxed. Well, not if you're watching you know, Ozark or, or some kind of, you know. I was going to say Happy Valley. Happy Valley, you know. So, you know, but so what you're watching, <laughs> totally, right? So, you know, the absence of, 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 a, of a classic stressor does not mean the presence of quality recovery. And, yeah. and where most people have, have made a mistake in their personal stress management is moving from one form of stimulus to another. And, and even if that stimulus is pleasure, it's still stimulus. And, and you know, fitness and exercise is a stress. You know, we don't get fitter when we exercise. We we create physiological damage. And then in the 24, 48 hours after that, our body goes, what the bloody hell did you do to me yesterday? I better build more blood vessels, more little mitochondrial cells that make energy, more, you know, ligaments, 
So that same thing doesn't damage me as much. So we're in this constant self-protective mechanism. So exercise itself is a stress and, and that inadequate recovery um, would, would be a fallibility of lots of people who, who love the feeling of exercise, but don't give it enough um, room for growth. I think, you know, to, to define stress, you know, stress is traditionally defined as when pressures exceed our ability to cope. You know, so when pressures exceed our ability to cope, which is an interesting definition. I'd go one step back and say, you know, stress is, is the lifeblood of, of performance. Stress is the lifeblood of happiness. It's the lifeblood of energy. Stress is fundamentally critical, positive, wonderful. You know, a life without stress is not the goal. Um, and again, having worked with lots of people who have unlimited wealth and unlimited opportunity, but no pressure upon them, nothing expected of them, no nowhere to be, nothing to do. I know that sounds like paradise, but that will present as as quite significantly difficult existence. You know, if nothing is expected of you, we come back to that purpose piece. If nothing's expected of me, what what am I doing here, and where where does my energy come from? So the absence of stress is never the goal. And, and we often look at this idea of a, a sort of pressure performance curve, that zero pressure equals zero performance. And then if there's more pressure upon me, I get more performance. That's very clear in sporting terms that, you know, if I'm running 100 meters, I'll run faster when my dad comes to watch and faster when my cousins come and faster at the national, faster at the international, fastest at the Olympics. So as pressure increases, we generally see an increase in performance that could again be drawn back to that little job promotion you take. Alice, when you first, you know, you're often doing projects that are just, you know, that feel enormous, but they, they, you grow through them, right? If you look yeah. at, you know, all the things that yeah. you've done in the last five years, your growth will have come from saying yes to things that felt just that big, bigger than you can handle. And that, so that, that again is where pressure is, is critical. We, we grow when we do something that, that is, that, that puts pressure on us and our performance increases along that way. The definition of, of stress that most people would think of is, is distress, actually, which is the point when the pressures now are leading to a decrease in performance, and my curve that was rising up is now starting to drop down on the other side. Um, and we, we call that distress, which is when the pressures have now overwhelmed my ability to cope, which is my physical ability to cope, my psychological ability to cope, my emotional ecosystem's ability to cope. They, they've overwhelmed me, and now I get diminishing performance. But critically, I also now start to get very definitive patterns of physiological change. Right? So when, when you sat here with a, with a physiologist talking about stress, you know, you think, well, it's a psychologist's domain. And that, that's still probably the biggest profession involved in stress because most stress comes through the mind. Like I said, two people walking down the street, one who sees a thousand muggers, one who th sees a thousand friends. It's not walking down the street that created the stress. It's what they thought about walking down the street. Yeah. But when we when we look at stress from the 1930s, we knew if we stressed rats, they got stomach ulcers. They got an enlarged um, gland on top of their kidney called the adrenal gland. Their thyroid, which produces a really important hormone that drives metabolism called thyroxine, and is very common to be underactive in, in females in particular, wasted away. So they, they were giving rats psychological stresses, but their, their bodies were, were sort of falling apart consistently. And so from the 1930s, we've known if that pressure overwhelmed someone's ability to cope for a prolonged period of time, it became disease. And so I was always interested in, in where are the steps in which we can intervene with that? Because we can't always change our environment and we can't always change what we think about our environment, but can we change the way we react to the way we think about our environment? And so they've got a traditional view of stress. We would say stress is enormously positive. But when stress overwhelms our ability to cope, then it becomes negative and we start to see a physical cascade of that. I think the second piece to note there is often people to think of stress as being fight or flight, right? So people know 
bit like we talked about with the, that nervous system. When I see a threat, my body gets ready to deal with that threat. And then when you speak to most people, they go, well, I, I don't have much stress because I don't have a constant fear of being attacked. I don't have these big traumatic events. And of course, when I do, that, that's a different category altogether. If I get a big divorce or a bereavement or a you know, moving house, but most people aren't in that state all the time. And so they look at their diet life and they go, well, I feel stressed, but there's no big stresses. And it's sort of death by a thousand cuts. It's, it's a case of, it's not one big thing that's affecting. It's the sum of all those little pressures that has now overwhelmed your ability to cope. And it might be the last thing that is a small thing that is that is created. That tips you now over the edge, yeah. And, and within that, we've also got to frame those, those events that would exceed your ability to cope might be positive. Now, there is a scale um, which looks at how likely you are. It's called the Holmes and Ray scale to get physically ill from life events. And things like that, we're not going to worry you, Alice, but marriage is on there. You know, as a, as a, and, and again, it's a huge thing, but it's a, it's a, it's a positive and negative stress. It's just, yeah, it's a load yeah. and your body's got to deal with it. it. On there sure. is a promotion, on there is retirement, you know. So stress isn't negative things that happen in big bursts to us. Stress is the fact that we face, from the minute I woke up today, I've got a thousand pressures, you know, get my kids up, you know, as the car MOT done, got to get, you know, is my IT working? Have I sent that money to that person who I owe it? And if there's too many of those, then my body disables its ability to go into physiological recovery. And that is really where we start to see this interplay between the theory of stress, heart rate variability, the physiology expression. So here's some broad you know, assumptions. Most people are hyper-stimulated, you know, have inadequate activities and behaviors that, that increase calm. And in that, they have inadequate time with their physiology spent restoring energy, recouping energy. And that means they're beholden to habits and behaviors like caffeine, you know, excessive exercise, excessive glucose, excessive, you know, argumentative behavior that further perpetuates them into a negative energy spiral. And over a period of time, that can significantly drip into mood state, you know, vision of the future, you know, et cetera. And, and so we're in this position of saying, well, 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 how do we break that? And we, I suppose we break it by saying, first and foremost, we, we have a finite ability to absorb pressures. And I am fascinated by the proliferation of 24 hour news and by, the fact that I've got people who are actively, you know, grieving over someone dying in, in a foreign country they've never met. Now that's not to be heartless, but when your when your cup is full, to go online and, and fill it with other people's woes is, is a really interesting and, and modern phenomena. So we've got to draw up the drawbridge sometimes and say, where can I cut off the pressures? Where can I change my mindset around the pressures that I'm facing? But my area is, is say, how do I increase the, the size of my glass, the size of my bucket to deal with these pressures through activities that actively engage parasympathetic. So where is my sleep routine? Where's my management of caffeine? Where's my management of alcohol? Where's my management of training load? Where's my interface with breath work? Where's my interface with, with chewing and eating? And build an infrastructure of very deployable, reasonable actions and behaviors that create more energy, more restoration, and mean that despite there not being a big stress, people feel less stressed for the actions that, that they've implemented. So interesting. And actually, I think your bucket analogy is is brilliant because I think we've all had that. You know, there are some weeks where I feel I can tackle lots of stuff and I've got multiple projects going on and I feel pretty invincible. I think that mine is absolutely impacted by hormonal fluctu fluctuations across a, um, you know, for me, 28-day cycle. But, you know, that can vary for, for, for different people. Um and I think that it's really fascinating to um, look, take each week and be like, you know, some weeks my, my bucket feels very big and I can, you know, bat things away quite easily. And then some weeks, for whatever reason, something happens and it's like, oh, I'm tipped over the edge and I feel completely stressed and 
unable to sleep and whatever. Um, I think that's a really brilliant analogy. What I'm really fascinated in is those coping strategies, mitigating that sense of my bucket is now flooded and, you know, there's water everywhere and I'm drowning. <laughs> yeah. Um, what what stops you from drowning? What's so, like, you know, like what is the what is the solution to what I think a lot of people feel? You know, I, I haven't worked one to one with clients for, for a while now, but when I did, I didn't have a single client who wasn't perpetually stressed, who wasn't at some point, you know, I, I remember I always had this lovely lady who would come on a Thursday morning and she was a really um high powered businesswoman, um, not on social media, but had like a big family and you know um lots going on and you know it was it was a 6am session and she'd come in and already at 6am she would be stressed you know it was like day hasn't even started but i'm stressed about this i'm stressed about that i'm stressed about this and you know it's it's so common to see that so we can't stop ourselves being stressed by our modern environment being stressed you know it, it's almost impossible for people to switch off their emails at five o'clock and say, that's me done. I can't be bothered anymore. Or, yes. um, you know, switch off the worries about paying the rent each month and dealing with the nursery bills and all that sort of stuff. So how do we equip people and especially those listening who are probably thinking, that's me, I'm perpetually stressed. Um, how do we equip people with those coping mechanisms that, that can just help them to turn the dial down and therefore mitigate a lot of the negative impacts of that constant state of stress. If I could solve this easily, then I would I be a very wealthy, well, hopefully a, a philanthropic sort of character sharing it widely. <laughs> and I, I think, you know, there are three key layers in which we can improve our coping, you know, in terms of, and, and you'll often find three different types of professionals. So if, if I'm getting excessively stressed, that's the output. You're going to say, how do I, how do I stop that? And let's, Give me an example of a of a big stress. Let's should we take a let's not do a wedding too too close let's, to it. Let's do. I think at the moment with the cosy lives, let's do paying pay, like paying rent each month. I think for a lot of people, like bills and rent is a big stress and takes up a lot of headspace. Totally, I, I think it's a totally fair one. So you you got your three layers, and again, some of this is deeply impractical, but on an individual basis, yeah, maybe. First thing is, can I can I change the stressor? You know, so you know when we look at at you know. Uh, where some people would say, oh, am I stressed because, you know, I've, I've only got 12 hours you know, in the day and three of those are spent commuting. You're like, okay, that's interesting. Do we, do we need to work in that location? Do we need to work in that job? Do we need to live in that house? Without being too sick. If you have a life coach, they'll sit with you and say, what are you doing you don't have to do? Now, that's not so easy with cost of living crisis, but you say, okay, wh where are the things that I could take out in terms of, of fixed or variable cost? that don't end up as me worried about the, the things that I can't do. So, you know, often you look and say, where, where is the, the piece itself? Can I chop it up? In business, you'd often look at that and look at delegation. So how many, you know, how often is the person doing something that they haven't passed off to someone else that don't trust them or they don't do it? So sometimes can I chop up the stress? Can I change the, can I change my house? You know, if, if my cost of living is the greatest crisis, can I downsize? Can I bring another person in? Can I do those things? In most cases, no. So that's not always an area, you know, if I had a, a particular, you know, if, if it's a bereavement, you can't change the fact someone's died, right? So the first thing is look at the stresses. So you, you put them all in a box and go, which of those are, are immovable, which ones are movable? And like I say, that's more of a life coach speciality. Then of course, the big thing about stress is, is not the act, it's, it's my reaction to the act, which is, you know, what do I think is going to happen? So, you know, there's often this sort of sense that, and it's incorrect, but you know that sort of depression is a fixation on the past, anxiety is a fixation on the future, happiness is is a fixation on the present. 
And as much as that's uh, incorrect clinically and, and oversimplified, it does draw to the fact that most of the stresses people worry about haven't actually happened. So if this happens, that happens, and that happens. So if I don't do this, then I get thrown on the street there. And if I'm thrown on the street, I lose my kids, whatever it is. So suddenly people are in the present living with the stress of their children not having a place to live or their child not being able to eat. Whereas in the short term, that may not be the case. Now, you've got to find the balance there between pragmatism and, you know, you can't just live in the present. And go, oh, like hippies would say you can. But, you know, if you live in the present without any planning for the future, you may find that does happen. So there's a line between how many of the stresses I'm worrying about are, are imagined catastrophized versions of the future. I used to have a fear of flying. And of course, I didn't have a fear of flying. I had a fear of dying. You know, I'm on a plane. There's 250 people going to Ibiza for a lovely holiday. I'm about to go to the gates of heaven or hell because the planes are going to blow up. So my I'm with reaction, you, I'm terrified yeah. <laughs> of flying. It gives me it gives me the worst anxiety. Totally. So so with that, it's really interesting. So uh, and this will move us into the third one. So on that same example, you can choose then not to fly, and that's that's a choice. Or you can say I'm going to fly, but I'm going to try and change the way I think about it. Which is if I'm on the plane, there's no stress. If I'm in a plane crash, there is. So. That's where meditation will become a powerful tool and why mindfulness became a really prolific technique because it takes me from a version of the future that isn't happening, the crash, to the present where I'm feet on the floor, touching my shoulders and nothing bad is happening. And that means my physiology will follow where it thinks I am. Remember, our physiology gets ready for what, we, what it thinks is about to happen. If it thinks the plane's going to crash, heart rate goes up, breathing goes into my chest, adrenaline's released, sugar's released. I have a very odd series of reactions that would make me feel anxious and horrible sat in that chair. Yeah. If I'm sat in that chair looking forward to my holiday, feet in the water, you know, sand and sea, and for me, factor 50 and, and sitting in the shade for two weeks, then my physiology will mirror that technique. Right? So that's the second biggest part of stress, which is, which is the way I think. And of course, that's where cognitive behavioral therapy will be a primary technique, which says, you and I probably had a bad flight that created a trauma that we loop back to. Yep. So, so the second area of, of stress, difficult cost of living is what am I thinking about that isn't true? And how do I get back to the truth and, and focus on the truth? And the third area is how do I dampen my reaction to that, which says, look, what is, is what is. And the calmer I am, the better I'll deal with it. And I remember when I first had a worry of flying, I could have taken a beta blocker, right? So some people, again, fear of public speaking, take a beta blocker. Now, I find that interesting that you could take a pill that means you're no longer scared of speaking to a thousand people or getting on an airplane. And what that does is that that pill lands in the receptors where adrenaline goes and just means it doesn't act on you. So you haven't changed the fact you're on a plane. You haven't changed you think it's going to blow up. But by the fact you haven't had that physiological reaction to it, it you, you stay calm. And there's an old phrase that it's, it's impossible to feel stressed if you're physiologically relaxed. And, and here again, we say, in situations where, where there is a huge volume of pressure and we can't think about it, the more we dampen our reaction will we'll benefit us in the way we deal with that situation. And that moves us into low-intensity cardiovascular exercise, which is an incredible buffer to stress. Management of caffeine pre-lunch, management of alcohol, which is a stress accelerant and a sleep destroyer, probably oh. deserves a separate podcast. But you know, yeah. alcohol is a muscle relaxant, which makes me feel relaxed, but neurologically, it, it kills my deep sleep, which is where I do most of my energetic restoration. Um, I would use you know, visualization. I'd use breath work. I would stabilize my glucose in my blood by eating you know, slow, fibrous foods with protein rather than quick processed foods that, that, that jolt me about. I would connect with people who, who bring me energy, not, not those who, who distort my energy. So 
the, the physiological part of coping can have a huge bearing that it didn't change my cost of living crisis. It didn't change the fact that, that, you know, I have got genuine worries, but if I react to them less, then that will make me more able to deal with what's going on one way or another. And often yeah. one of the great problems of stress is the feeling of stress perpetuates the feeling of stress, you know, and, and, and we know if that cycle gets completely out of control, that's a panic attack, right? So I, I'm that breath work then means I'm listening now to the engine revving up. What does that mean? The pilot's dead up front, you know, oh my God. And suddenly, you know, I'm in this sort of uncontrolled respiratory pattern that, that, that can't, can't easily be broken. So sometimes we have to say that if I can drive myself to be as physiologically calm as possible to bring as much energy restoration into the habits and behaviors of my day, it will help the way I think. And that might also help me go upstream to change some of the, the stresses that are in my life that, that may not need to be there. That was like the best explanation I could have asked for. It was brilliant because I think a lot of the time, um, again, going back to this oversimplification of of things, we know that we know that breath work is is something that's you know received a lot of hype over the last few years, and we understand. You know, I I know on a physiological level that slow, elongated breathing, box breathing is going to help me to come back from a stress state into a more of a parasympathetic state. We know that hard, fast breathing and, you know, a, a kind of um, what we would describe as kind of a panicked state is going to tip me into that stress state. But but really, I think that beyond that, I, I maybe haven't had as good an understanding of those three states and understanding how to manage them on each level. And I think that's a, a really, really brilliant analogy. I think that... Um, just interestingly, you were describing how you react to situations is is really um, a, a good one. And Paddy and I had a long conversation about this the other day and that we were talking about road rage. It's one of those things where it's a really interesting kind of analogy for people's general state of being because even I have had days where I'm in the car, I'm driving along, someone cuts me up, but I'm having a good day and I feel relatively calm and I'm going somewhere nice and I'm like, ah, do you know what? In they go. If you catch me on a day where I've had a particularly stressful morning, I'm a little bit late, I'm not really looking forward to where I'm going, it's raining, someone cuts me up and I'm like, Jesus Christ, this is <laughs> do you know what I mean? Like how you respond to that situation is so determined by so many other things. And I think that it's a really good analogy for how we respond to stuff can be so dictated to by allowing ourselves to do those things that bring us back from teetering on the verge of losing your shit at someone who cuts in front of you basically that's that's basically how i see it is that the things that i do even though at the time they might not feel instantly um calming you know when i get up and do some breath work in the morning i don't suddenly finish and go oh i feel amazing that everything is good but i know that in doing that say that i get an email at 10 a.m that's actually a bit stressful i probably am going to be in a better position to answer that email that's slightly stressful or annoying or whatever it is in a way that is a little bit calmer, a little bit more measured, a little bit more thought through than firing back a reply that's like, Jesus Christ, do you know what I mean? Yeah, I, and I, I think that it, and it, and it's that sort of thing. I think for me, road rage is always the really good example of that. And it and when you look at other people and you look at how people respond and are in road rage situations, you only have to put yourself in other people's shoes to say, I actually feel a bit sorry for you. If if your day is that bad that, you know, the smallest thing in a car or someone cutting you up is, or, or even you just, you know, revving your engine at the lights because you want to overtake the person next to you, like what's going on psychologically for you that, that that's putting you into that state? And I think that it just shows how many of us are very stressed um, and just teetering on the verge of, like I said, tipping over into that uh, distressed state. 
Um, so I think that your analogy is brilliant. You know, we have some things that we cannot change and we have to deal with them. We have the ability to change, you know, our thought process around them or to try and mitigate how we feel about them. And then we have the kind of how we react. Um, and I think that that's, that's a really brilliant analogy. Now, look, we have gone on for an hour and 15 minutes and I am conscious that I could carry on going on for probably about another hour. So maybe we'll have to get you back for round two and talk about um, the two final pillars. I'd love to go into sleep with you as well because I know that we've had some really fascinating conversations on that. Um, but for now... I think that I just want to wrap up on what has been such an interesting conversation. And really, I feel like I've, I'm coming away from this with like, oh, I've le- I feel like I've learned so much. And it's been so insightful. And Ollie, I really appreciate you giving up your time. Um, if people want to find out more about you and what you do, we will put the link to Future Practice in the show notes and we'll put the link to your social media and everything. Are you still well-being, Dad? I'm well-being. I've, I set up it because... Because well-being dad was such a like horrific name. I've set up clinical, clinical underscore well-being, which is slightly more professional. But I've keep, I keep both accounts a little bit more professional. When when you and I first met, and you were like, I don't really do Instagram, but my handle is well-being dad. I was like, Oh, Ollie, we've got a lot cringe. to chat through here. <laughs> I love it. I love it. So good. Anyway, no, I need a, thank- I need a brand overhaul completely. <laughs> Thank you so much for your time and I will chat to you you. again, I hope, very soon. Oh, thanks for having me, Alice. Always brilliant and so good to see you. Nailing it with this show and everything else. So thanks for having me on. It's been lovely. so much for listening i really hope you enjoyed that episode i would love it if you could take some time to rate review and follow the podcast as it really helps others to find it we have a new episode dropping each week so this will also ensure you don't miss out see you next time insanity group